The questions you always had. The answers you were never given. The place to seek the truth. Welcome to Veritas. Greetings to everyone around the world and a warm welcome to a new season of Veritas. Tonight we celebrate another birthday. Veritas turns 12, and with that, we begin season 13. I hope everyone had a nice Thanksgiving, and as I always say, every day should be a day where we engage in gratitude. To you, loyal listener, thank you for your support all these years. You inspire me in ways you can't even imagine, and you don't even know it. Thank you for believing in me. This is truly the people's media, and we wouldn't be here without you. The world seems upside down now. This is ultimately a good thing. Evil is becoming more perceptible. And yet, all our infrastructure was falsely built on this evil. So those who love the untruth of it are going to suffer. And that's most people. Tonight, we bring you a theological and eschatological scriptural perspective to current events. In addition to the geopolitical one, heavenly fires and strong delusions coming up next. You are listening to Veritas. If this is your first time, welcome home. To listen to tonight's full interview and all of our material, join the Veritas family and click on the subscribe button at veritasradio.com. You can make your purchase with a credit card, PayPal, cash, check, money order, and even cryptocurrency. We are now accepting Bitcoin, Litecoin, and Ethereum. Don't forget to visit the Veritas store for focused life force energy, MMS, CBD pure hemp oil, Divinia water, pure organic sulfur, flash drives with all our Sanitas and Veritas seasons, and other great products. And if you want to get in touch with Mel, want to be a guest on this radio program, have a guest suggestion, or have feedback, just click on the contact button of our website at veritasradio.com. And if you're listening on YouTube, like, subscribe, and share it. And click the bell to be notified when new interviews are available. And now, here's your host, Mel Hostelrick. Today's special guest doesn't need a long intro. He's a veteran and a good friend of this platform. I'm referring to the one and only Neil Kramer, an English writer, philosopher, author, and teacher, specializing in the fields of consciousness, metaphysics, and mysticism. As you know, Neil is renowned for his unique blend of lucidity, empowerment, and authenticity. His website is neilkramer.com, and he joins us from the Pacific Northwest. Hello, Neil, and thank you once again for making Veritas better with your presence every time we begin a, a new season. How are you? Thank you very much. I'm very well, indeed. Thank you. It's a pleasure and a privilege to be with you, as it always is. Thanks for inviting me back. Always a pleasure. Neil, just to begin with, we seem to be living in a bizarre world, upside down, what's good is bad, what's... what's What's this is there. What's your take of what's currently taking place, not only here in the United States, but worldwide? (laughs) Goodness me, where to begin? There's so much to say, isn't there? I I think we'd need two years to unpack this thoroughly. Did you think the last time we spoke a year ago that we would be in this current event right now? I hope I'd hoped so, yeah, because the pain needs to increase before the solution arrives. So although it's unsettling for a lot of people, I think that those like myself who take the long view and the objective view as far as possible, above just the concerns of our own personal affairs, 
even though there's this giant instability and all this terrible fakery, it's undoubtedly a good thing because, as you just said earlier in your intro, evil is perceptible now. And for most people's lives, certainly everyone alive before us, it, it wasn't. It was very invisible. And now you can see it. So that signals the end of evil empire, that it's revealed itself, it's uncloaked. And as soon as it does that, it cannot recloak. It cannot go back again. So although it's unsettling, and I genuinely feel for people whose livelihoods have been swept away or whose sense of peace has been rattled, if we can just get above ourselves for a moment, it's for the best. And I can map that out very thoroughly for you uh, tonight and talk about that in detail, how I see it. But generally, I think it's a good thing. I always do. The, the worse it gets, the better it is, frankly. And as you also indicated, that the fact that a lot of our economic and educational and entertainment uh, foundations have been based on falsehood means that we're going to have to reformat them. We're going to have to reformat that hard drive and make sure that we get things right. So I, I honestly don't think much is being lost right now. Uh, it's just that the old traditions were false. And people like you and me and 99% of the listeners, we already knew that. It's no giant surprise. But for the mainstream world out there, it's, it's dreadfully upsetting and all the rituals and ceremonies and predictable things of life have been washed away. They've gone and they'll never come back. So even though we know a lot of these falsehoods are damaging, what's not visible to most people is quite how much of our societal infrastructure was based upon them. So our fiscal strengths and our moral strengths and our uh, community strengths need to be reorganized because the way they were was false all of our lives and, and our grandparents and parents and great grand all of them going back generations. So although it's unstable and it's not got that sort of 1950s old-fashioned American goodness anymore, or in, the, in Britain it was the golden era was really the 1930s. So of 1920 to 1930 was a very golden era for England. But those eras were also deeply ignorant so now, for the first time, we have the capacity, the technology, and the distributed journalism to actually not only expose it, but also analyze it and corroborate it, not just with wild theories, but with logic and reason and facts and science. And that's, that's the end of empire, that their game is up, their magic trick has been exposed. And just like a magic show at the you know, theater in Las Vegas, once you've seen how the magician's done the trick, you can't be fooled again because you know how it's done. And Empire's trick has been revealed. So I think people now are onto it. And as I say, in a few moments, I'll let you respond to that, but I'll, I'll detail and map out how I see that. The, percep the perceptibility of evil, was it planned, the fact that it's making itself perceptible? Or is it that more people are waking up? I think it, they would have much rather have stayed in the shadows. They would have much rather stayed invisible, cloaked, hidden, concealed. Uh, because you can do more that way. And you can uh, impersonate forces for good when you're concealed. But when you're out there and people can see the, the teeth and the horns and the, you know, the obvious 
facade of evil has presented itself as, as concrete and crystallized, and you can see it, smell it, feel it, touch it, then the power that they have, although it's it's you know more shocking, is actually less effective because that element of concealment constitutes a, a giant part of Empire's power. And once that's gone, they're in trouble. So I think the measures, it's not like a giant plan that it'll eventually reveal itself. I think their hand has been forced. They've had to show this uh, next phase of their plan, which I think is decades sooner than they would have wished to do decades sooner because the generation of brainwashed people are not the adults running the world yet. They should have waited another 20 or 30 years. They haven't. They've had to pull the trigger now. And I think that's a, a sign of desperation, frankly. They've not got many other options. So they're in truly, as many commentators have uh, proposed recently, they're in an existential crisis for the first time ever, in my view. And that's that's undeniably a good thing. So I, I think that it wasn't their plan to reveal themselves for at least a generation. They've done it early because um, forces for good, uh, some of them covert, some of them military, some of them independent journalists like you, some of them independent commentators and thinkers like me, have all got together, hundreds of us, thousands of us, millions of us maybe, and made life extremely difficult for them. As I say, sometimes physically, sometimes emotionally, sometimes intellectually, sometimes spiritually, and revealed the problem. And I have to say that the arrival of the internet has made that connecting with each other possible. And it's a a nice irony that this military apparatus is being used to take down a great army of evil. So there's a sort of poetic uh, logic to it for me there. Some people are contacting me, letting me know that we are on the edge or the precipice and, and entering another age. In fact, this coming winter solstice, December 21st, we'll have planets or, or wandering lights, some people call them, and that happens every 27,000 years. Could we be entering the age of Aquarius? <laughs> I don't know. I don't really know what that means. But um, I think we are definitely entering a new phase. And um, I think perhaps I can take this opportunity, if, if that's all right with you, to tell you what I think, to tell you how I map out current world affairs. Is this a good moment for me to yes, yes, launch absolutely. into that? Please proceed. Okay. What I'd like to do, just thinking about this earlier today, knowing I was going to speak to you, and I want to give the best shot at this. So now we've warmed up for 10 minutes, you know, let's get into this. What I'd like to do is present four perspectives on what's happening, um, which I think they have a relationship with each other. And I think everyone will recognize them as we talk about them. And it's it's really going to, I think, help us perceive the problem and the solution in a much clearer way. So I'm going to present to you four perspectives, four scenarios, four views, four worldviews, but we'll call them perspectives for now, which describe what I think is going on and the ways of looking at the world. So let's say perspective one is the fiction. This is the world of illusion, a world where governments and world leaders and entertainment and educational institutions and big pharma and big tech are all working very hard to make a better world for us. And everything is quite fair and open and, you know, relatively balanced. And we elect political leaders based on 
free and fair elections that represent a, an overall consensus. And, and something like COVID comes along and is a terrible virus that's just suddenly arisen and we're all fighting this dreadful battle together and we're all campaigning together for the environment and social justice and peace and free healthcare. And everyone is suddenly gay and trans and everyone is suddenly racist and we're all suddenly going to be far better off living in giant mega cities and enjoying you know, free benefits from a huge government social welfare program and all that sort of extreme falsehood. So that that's perspective one of fiction, a fictional world, which is, of course, by nature untrue. And it's all designed to be an imaginary fantasy that people can lose themselves in. It's like a piece of theater, an unreal world for people who are either stupid, scared, or lazy, or all three. <laughs> and in this worldview, of course, just taking a current event right now that we're all aware of, Joe Biden won the election. And it's time for a, a new leadership with new bold ideas about shaping a more modern, democratic, socialist society. So that, that's perspective one, fiction, right? Perspective two, nonfiction. So perspective two brings us through to a greater reality, a truer world, a world of nonfiction, a world where most world governments are deeply corrupt and have been for centuries or even millennia, where parts of the intelligence services that, of course, are supposed to protect us have actually become also crooked and now wage these secret international wars and crusades against freedom and goodness, and where these you know, clandestine think tanks and secret societies formulate policies and strategies for the world, for the globe, and then serve them up to puppet world leaders who then enact them on their nations. And this, this non-fiction worldview recognizes, of course, that we've been purposefully given bad education, bad science, bad medicine, uh, bad entertainment, bad religion, bad media, bad news. So it's, it's rather at first a bleak view at first, but there is also a flip side that there's a discovery also of real knowledge, real information about reality that was previously hidden, real education, real science, real medicine, you know, real history, real theology, real cosmology, exciting, cool, renewing information. So that's the nonfiction view perspective too. And in that world, Joe Biden lost the election there was a massive election fraud, and it's time for that to be proven. And this federal republic we live in, operating under a, the supreme law of the Constitution, will put a decent man back in the Oval Office, Trump, for another four years, who will help return society to independence and strength and justice and goodness. Or maybe it'll be General Flynn who does that. For the first time in generations, we've never had that. So that, that's perspective two, non-fiction. Okay, so we're moving up up the hierarchy. Here. Perspective three. Well, we could call this, I don't know, hyper reality, where having educated yourself thoroughly over the years on the previous perspective we've just talked about, a non-fictional worldview, and having multiple more years of study of the more esoteric and um, concealed elements of reality, you come to realize that the real world is far more epically interesting and fascinating than most people can actually handle that even want to know about and that the real historical timelines of earth are dramatically different to what is recognized in the mainstream and that even the structure and the age 
and the shape of the Earth is wildly different from what we thought, what we've been told. And that space itself out there above the skies is not what we thought it was. Evolution is wrong. Carbon dating is wrong. So the ancientness of everything is wrong. And that actually the world is shockingly new and fresh and brief. And we come to see in this way of thinking that indeed many apparently established facts in terms of you know, the natural history and science of our world are totally wrong, mostly wrong, mostly on purpose. Events are wrong. World War One and Two didn't go down the way we've been told. Even to people who were alive at that time, they had no idea what was happening. The sinking of the Titanic, 9-11, dozens of school shootings, the space shuttle, and all manner of disasters and crashes and massacres and killings and also achievements and apparent discoveries, not what we thought they were. They were something different. And it turns out that a lot of these things are just a story. They just, they were not true. They were manufactured. And we can show that now, proven not just by theories, but by facts and reason and logic. I mean, it is conspiratorial in the sense there was conspiracy conspiracy to um, conceal these happenings. But it's not conspiratorial in the sense that they are, you know, shaky, wild rumors. This, this is people examining hyper-reality for real. We don't do that. We only want the truth, the, tr- the truth at all costs. Whether we like it, whether we dislike it, whether it fits with our theories or not, whether it's popular or unpopular, whether it's safe or dangerous, we want the truth at all costs. So this this third worldview, this perspective three hyperreality, it also brings into play the reality of levels of technology that have been previously entirely concealed from mainstream life. Things like teleportation, anti-gravity, telekinesis. And I would say perhaps the most relevant and pressing and shocking of all in our time of human synthetics, human doubles. And that to realize, and you can show this, that the technology now exists to put out a double of someone like Hillary Clinton or Joe Biden or Justin Trudeau or Boris Johnson and have them come out and say stuff and do things that look real. Doubles that are virtually indistinguishable from the original. Certainly, you know, to the untrained eye, you'd never know. You'd never know you you weren't looking at the original. You're looking at a double. And I think to achieve this, for example, just as one technology, they use a mix of different styles of technique, different technologies. So they use both um, physical and non-physical, you know, biological and synthetics. So you have at the sort of lowest tier, you know, lookalikes. They used to do this with Saddam Hussein and Bin Laden and Margaret Thatcher in times gone by. You know, they get out, come out of a hotel, wave at the cameras and get into a limousine. It wasn't them. All the security services, good and bad, they knew that. It was just a, a show. It was just a lookalike. They do it all the time. Lots of world leaders have done this for generations. That's no big deal. People used to do this in ancient Rome and Greece. No big deal. What we have now, though, is something different. We also have CGI holograms that move and talk, and you can't tell the difference. Clones, robots. A technology here hidden from the public for decades that is now gradually starting to be uncovered. And, of course, they have these things, the bad guys and the good guys and the intelligence and the military communities. And I think they've they've been doing this since about the 1980s to some small level. 
but they had to be very careful. But now, 40 years later, they can put out a double and you can't tell. And I've been watching this situation very carefully for some time now, and the good guys have been using doubles extensively. It's not just the bad people. And this leads to one of the bloody major truth bombshells of this perspective, this hyper-reality worldview. And that's the idea that I propose to your audience tonight, that we're not watching some historic and dramatic battle now between freedom and slavery, and we're not on a precipice of destruction. I think we're watching a simulation. I think we're watching a training exercise, and that many of the bad guys, in this perspective, this view, we're just theorizing here, but in this view, many of the bad people have already been dealt with via execution or flipping or imprisonment or release from their blackmail all some time ago. And so many of the major leaders and players and billionaires and media people and entertainers and so on are not what you think they are. They're either not there or they're playing along very precisely to a pre-existing script. And that script is designed to re-educate, to retrain the world in what is really happening on Earth. And for the first time ever, the good guys are in the driving seat. It's never happened before. And we hold all the aces. And empire's damage control is, is finished. The battle is essentially done. And what we're now undergoing is years of gentle, slow, societal re-education. Why? To avoid massive social collapse and mental instability. And slowly, gradually, we inch away from the prior centuries of invisible imperial oppression. And we get with that, as we said earlier, all these new technologies and events and histories and remedies and freedoms which will slowly replace the old horrors. So this perspective three, frankly, that hyper-reality is beyond a lot of people. They can't believe such a thing is possible. It sounds like science fiction. I am aware of that. It sounds crazy. It won't do to most of your listeners, but in the mainstream, you can't go there. Perspective three is <laughs> taboo. It's mental talk. It's nut job talk. So you have to be careful. So we'll finish on this thought, if we hand it back over to you, with perspective four. Perspective four, you know, goodness me, what on earth could this be? <laughs> you might ask yourself after everything we've already said about perspective three. Well, following on from those prior things we talked about, perspective one, the fiction, perspective two, the non-fiction, perspective three, hyper-reality. What we come to now with perspective four is supernatural reality. And I would, again, posit to the listener that this is the only reality, the only reliable cause of reality. This is the true worldview, as I strongly feel myself and I've done for many years. And it is that God is teaching us something. He's teaching us a lesson in discernment. And that is why everyone is alive. Everyone who lives is undergoing this teaching. And that's why we have this vast sort of uh, dramaturgical production of good and evil. Dramaturgy, by the way, it's a bit of a fancy word. Dra dramaturgy, dramaturgy being the art and sort of science of dramatic composition and symbolism in order to get a point across, in order to get a teaching across. So, you know, Shakespeare writes a great comedy, 
very dramatic or a great tragedy, of course, very dramatic to get a point across to teach the theatric, the theatre-going audience about love or loss or tragedy or grief. So it's staged purposefully, very dramatic to teach something, to get a point across. And so I think it is reasonable, therefore, to observe that God excels in dramatological style and ingenuity. And, you, you know, you can't escape the world teachings wherever you live on earth, whatever you do, whoever you're with, whatever your station in life, you can't escape the world teachings. They're right in front of you. So this, the supernatural worldview tells us that God is teaching us about discernment, about life itself, and demanding, commanding that we are able to distinguish between as we said a year ago, good and evil, right and wrong, true and false. And the only way to do that is through his being, through him, through seeking his deity, his spirit, his word, and investigating his divine presence in this very deeply providential world. And you'd, you'd simply do that through devoting your whole life to his word. So these pursuits, all the prior worldviews come into focus then. And we see that all those perspectives we talked about are kind of initiatory levels of spiritual education, all of them. So, you know, you start off with the silly fiction for babies, and then the nonfiction for adolescents, and then the hyper-reality for adults, and then the supernatural reality for elders, wise elders. Not in age necessarily, but in knowledge, in understanding, in wisdom. And these stages are, are chosen by every individual. No one alive has any greater or lesser privilege than anyone else in this respect in their potential for knowing these worldviews, studying with reason. Everyone can do that with zeal, with passion, with care, with diligence. Everyone can do that. So the supernatural worldview to me is the only view that delivers answers, ultimate answers. And it is, of course, supernatural in the sense that it deals with causes that are not in physical reality. So when we use the word supernatural, that's what we mean. Supernatural, just inferring what today you'd describe as metaphysical, above and outside the world of physical objects. And in this world, a creator, an intelligence, a purpose, a destiny is seen throughout. And for me, personally, just in my own life, over nearly 50 years now, I've examined this worldview and tried to corroborate it, and it gets stronger and clearer the more I test it. And the more I attack it, the more I investigate it with objectivity and reason and care. It just continues, as I say, to crystallize and strengthen. So you, you see this old adage they used to teach in ancient Greece is true, that something that is true doesn't really need defending. And therefore, when it's tested, it gets stronger. Whereas something that's false, if you test that, it tends to dissolve. So I'd say this, the supernatural worldview, honestly, it's, you know, it's a lifetime work for somebody. Essentially, what is it? It's the study and practice of applied theology. And that's where all cause comes from. So the effects on earth, all this drama, all this theater that we're going through at the moment, and secrets and lies and deceptions from the good guys, and of course, from the bad guys, all of that theater is part of the teaching of God. And for anyone not familiar with theology, it's, it's simply the study of the nature of God. You know, what can we know about this entity? And it's, it's rational inquiry into all 
questions related to that, everything. So one way of saying it is some teachers describe it like this. You know, if, if physics and biology and chemistry are disciplines in observing the natural physical world, then theology is the discipline of observing the supernatural non-physical world. And what I teach, applied theology, is therefore the application of such theological insights into our everyday life. So that's the supernatural worldview. And with that, it's not only a great beauty and a great truth, but also a massive strength, a massive world-shattering optimism that makes sense of everything. And it's, it's absolutely true. And everything falls into place in those prior perspectives when you view it from this angle. And I believe it is what we are here to do is to heed that perspective for the supernatural worldview. And all other theater of good and evil and right and wrong and true and false, we have to examine it. That's what what we're here to do. You can't ignore it. You can't seclude yourself away. We should look at it. We should be deeply concerned about it. But only in the sense of someone who is participating in this teaching realizes that the essence of the teaching is where the gold is. That's what matters. So to tell yourself the truth in these times is everything, absolutely everything, even when it goes against the grain, even more than ever. It's everything. And I think it's getting easier and easier and easier. Over to you. Wow. When you said dramaturgy, I thought of Shakespeare, and I also thought of a, a mystery school or even Hypatia of Alexandria and all the yes, prominent indeed, yes. yeah, and all the prominent thinkers of the time who imparted upon their students the gnosis that in today's world is forbidden. Do you think that we are finally lifting the veil? I mean yes. we know, we see the Wizard of Oz, we see the little man behind the the, the, the curtain doing these things. Are people doing something about it? Because just like we have oceans composing the earth 75%, I also think that 75% of the people are asleep. So it's going to take this 10 or 25% of the people to finally rise and make the change. Well, that's a great question. That's a great question because, of course, the reality is most people are bloody stupid and they're content to remain in their stupid ignorance, self-chosen. They weren't born that way. Nobody was. Most people don't want to know what's going on. They believe that they're alive for their own pleasure and purpose. Not true. You're alive for God's pleasure and purpose. Get over it. You are. People don't like that. So it calls into question the whole worldview. And I would say that, again, what you have to begin to do with this is examine, well, what what was the story on this by some of the ancient wise people, some of the sages and prophets of long ago? What did they think about this? Because this big blow-up of social unrest at the moment, you know, not just uh, physically in society like looting and rioting and not those morons. They're, they're a very, very tiny minority. The real unrest is in people's hearts, which is, wow, liberalism is satanic. Yes, it is. It's a trick. It's something very bad. It's not what you thought it was. And if you want to hear a reasoned deconstruction of liber liberalism, <clears throat> go and listen to my uh, podcast. I call them Romecasts because I'm usually wandering around. Go and listen to Romecast 27 free on my website, neilkramer.com. Go and listen. If you want a nice 
reasoned, mature takedown of liberalism. Why? And go listen to it. But I think that to get the answer from this, you have to once again go to the supernatural worldview. So you ask me good questions. You know, does this take more people? Are we, is it a great awakening? Is it this? Is it that? The great awakening is qualitative. It's not quantitative. So it's not like, wow, we need 8 billion people awake before this problem's fine. That's never going to happen. It's a, it's a quality of awakening in everybody's life themselves. And I think the answer to the problem is, again, to conceive of where does it stem from? Where does this evil stem from? So you, you're always going to the root, the cause, not the effect, not the symptoms. You know, It's like if you go to the doctor with red dots all over your chest and you've got some rash and it's all over your hands. You don't just want the cream for it. You want to know what's happened and what have you got and what how, how did you get it and what is it? And then we can know how to deal with it. So we want the cause of the illness, not just to deal with the symptoms. So you might do that indefinitely and it never goes away. In the same manner, we've got all these symptoms at the moment of evil in society. Where does it come from? Where does evil come from? And that's the supernatural worldview begins to answer that. And in my view, I would say that empire, which I essentially say is this administration of a negative supernatural force, empire is driven by Satan. And Satan is a genuine, real, supernatural entity in whom evil is incarnate. And this this being, you know, like Sauron in Tolkien, he's not got arms and legs. He doesn't, he's not like a devil with horns and a, a trident. He doesn't wander around in quite that way. He's a, a spirit being. You can't see him. He's, he's non-physical. And it, this entity was a, was a potentially of this messenger class in uh, hierarchies of life in theology, which the, the Greek word for messenger is angeloi, angelos, which means uh, messenger, emissary. And the English translation of that is angel. So whether he was one or not, the Bible remains silent on that. It never tells us. There's indications one way or another, but it doesn't actually stipulate it clearly. But he was certainly of that class, this being, because he could get audience with other Angelos, other messengers, and God himself. So he wasn't at the same level, but he was able to sit before the court of the king, as it were. So he wasn't just a human. And this... Satan's whole purpose is basically to turn people away from God now, which because of his own pride, you know, he just rebelled in a nihilistic way and wants to just take everyone with him. So he's like on a path to his own destruction, this sad being. And in that spiral downward, he wants to take as much with him as he can. So it's it's important to recognize in that respect that Satan is not God's adversary in theology. God could disintegrate Satan with a word. Satan is humankind's adversary, used by God to assess our behavior and discernment. So Satan in that role serves as this great tempter and antagonist. And as I say, he wants to take as many people down with him into the lake of fire deletion vortex as possible. Lake of fire, simply a poetic flourish. What we're talking about is a fire, a heavenly fire that makes and unmakes God uses this fire many times to undo creation. And usually when angels appear or when Christ comes back, he's accompanied by this heavenly fire 
that's like matrix unrendering fire. It unmakes things. Totally, totally unstoppable. Total, complete soul death for anything subject to that heavenly fire. And that second death, so-called, as it's known in scripture, is is this final death. And I feel that the, the sort of spiritual personage of Satan willingly commenced his career of evil of his own accord, of his own hand. And God accepted it and permitted it as part of this giant free will exercise of creation that we're all undergoing. So evil may be chosen by any free will being, a man, a woman, a child, an angel, a demon, Nephilim, but it's not necessitated by God. So we say, therefore, of course, that Satan has two main objectives, as we say. Number one, to turn people away from God. Number two, to lengthen his dominion on earth by slowing down mankind's development. So Satan, he can't escape this place. He cannot leave. When it goes down, he goes down. When the earth classroom is done and the structure is destroyed to make way for a new world, all beings who have lived evil incarnate in themselves and those humans who also did that willingly bringing it into their own choices, willingly subservient to it, they're all toast. They're gone. They're annihilated, destroyed forever. So throughout all the things we've discussed just now and what we'll come to in the next hour and a half, we can and should always, I think, begin with that highest perspective, the supernatural perspective, good and evil, spiritual classroom. And that the game of politics and military and intelligence services and war and all of that is not really about power and money and control and slavery. It's not really about that. Those are vulgar little playthings to evil. What it's really about is a vast supernatural teaching embedded within the conflict between choosing good and evil. And there is no middle ground. So the teaching now has reached this gross polarization where the most preposterous things are happening, as we talked about in Perspective 1, the fiction. It's obviously a fiction. Obviously. And so we see that uh, we're then given a sort of eschatology here when you start to examine a theology. And eschatology just is, again, for anyone who doesn't know, not everybody knows, is from this Greek word, eschatos, which means sort of the last thing, the furthest out thing, something on the horizon, something remote in time and space or degree. And so what I'd, what I'd like to do, Mel, if it's all right with you, is draw together three very important prophetic and eschatological texts from Scripture of great prophecy, which are going to speak of, I believe, what we're potentially in the middle of. Um, and that would be um, something that then shows that this has been foretold and seen an empire's somewhat powerless at this point which i think is going to take a lot of sting and fear out of people's current weight of concern about world affairs so if you'll allow me i'll uh, lay that out for you as well before you go there just one one comment does this yeah. evil force we call satan exist because our reality fiction nonfiction, hyper reality or supernatural reality have one thing in common polarity or duality. In order to have good, we must have evil, night, day, hot and cold. Is it a matter of learning how to live with that polarity? And then you can proceed with what you're planning to 
Sure. Yeah. Polarity is polarity, duality, opposites, contrasts. They're the foundational teaching in the earth right now, the second earth. We'll talk about the first and the third another time perhaps, but this earth we're in now, the foundational teaching is polarization, dualism. You can't escape it. You can't lead a non-dualistic life and just deny things or you'll just get trampled by evil. You'll get crushed by it. You have to choose. And you have to examine those teachings of what is good, what is evil, how are they forces that exist outside of human culture? How are they there at the beginning and there at the end? What are they? How do they arise? What's true and false? What's wrong and right? And those those teaching mechanisms are purposefully brought to us to demonstrate Basically, again, given free will, everyone has the choice, you see, which God, you could say, well, doesn't God already know? He could do, but he's giving us the choice to choose because he only wants to go to the next iteration of the creation, which is a new earth, vastly heavenly superior to this very, very difficult assault course that we're in now. He only wants to take the people who've demonstrated that they care, who demonstrate that he can trust them, who demonstrate they choose goodness righteousness and truth who have a passion and a love of truth even when it's against the grain even when it goes against the tide that they've shown it proven it over a lifetime that's what we're going through at the moment it's a proving ground it's a test and polarity duality is at the heart of it now in the next world i believe duality and polarity are done away with Because as we learn, again, from theological, mystical, esoteric sources, many of them, especially Christian, agree that the anchors for negative polarity are destroyed when this world is destroyed. The false prophets, Satan himself, death itself, and all the humans who couldn't be bothered to look at truth are also destroyed. So that's what I love about Christianity. It's it's super no messing about. Not everyone makes it. And yet everyone is invited to make it. All you've got to do is care about the truth and pursue it, seek it in your life, devotedly throughout your life. Some people in a small way, because that's where you are. You're in the middle of a desert looking after 20 children. You you can't be going off on some giant adventure. So your truth-seeking takes place within the sphere of that life. If you're probably most people listening to this, you've got some time. You've got a little bit of money. You've got some freedom over your own schedule, some. And that giant luxury can be given, devoted increasingly to examining truth. And truth leads to God. So, yes, I would say the polarity, the dualism is essential. And Satan is the incarnate anchor for that in this world. I didn't mean to deviate from what you would wanted to say before. No, it's good. No, it's good. It's a, it's a, it's a great point. Happy to happy to. So tell, uh, address it. tell us what you were going to say before I interjected. <laughs> yeah, no problem. Yeah, my pleasure. So as I say, I wanted to draw together three eschatological prophetic visions from uh, Scripture, which uh, is very significant because these Scriptures have been basically the only historical holy book we have is the Bible. All the other ones are mythologies, essentially, stories, accounts, mythologies made up most of it, whether it's Hindu or Buddhist or Scandinavian, the mythologies, Greek, Roman, the mythologies. Scripture, that is this anthology of 66 interesting books, 
is historical documents about real paper, real people, real places, real visions, real miracle, real life. And if someone doesn't know that, you need to get your brain into gear and investigate it and go and have a look. And if you've had a bad experience with a church or a stupid denomination, a cult, I can understand why somebody might be reluctant to do that. But it's worth taking a second look, to say the least. And in this, in this scripture, which again is a lifetime's work, and I've, I've spent three decades examining that book, the Bible, and all its different approaches and translations and learning some very rudimentary Hebrew and uh, Greek in order to unpack it and see its deep, deep esoteric coding, as well as its very fine surface reading. There is a deeper studied reading. And in that, I'll just present one view to you, uh, which is this. Um, three books, Second Thessalonians, which is a letter, Daniel, which is a book of prophecy, major prophecy, and Revelation, which is a book also of prophecy. So we're going to just jump from one of those to the other. We'll st- in fact, we'll start with Second Thessalonians. What is that? Well, it- it's a letter written by the apostle Paul to the Thessalonians. Who were they? A group of spiritual people living in Thessalonica in Greece, and a group that Paul especially cared about and was deeply interested in their welfare. And we know that this letter, so-called epistle, uh, Second Thessalonians was actually penned, written in Corinth, uh, which is another place nearby, in about 51 or 52 AD. So it's a real letter. It's not some made-up thing. It's a real document. Just like if you posted me a letter, and I opened it, and it said, this is from Mel to Neil, and we read it. It's two pages. That's what Second Thessalonians is just like. It's two pages, two-page letter. And the gist of it is that Paul was writing to the, as I say, the people of Thessalonica in order to acknowledge their very grave concerns about their fears of end times, that they thought it was very immediate upon them at that time. And also in the letter, to then articulate the proper view, the proper markers for actual end times, which is much further away than they were worried about. So he's basically saying some calm down. The world isn't going to end for you anytime soon. You're going to live out your life in a normal, natural manner and don't worry about it. But I'll tell you when it is going to end, and I'll give you some important eschatological markers for that. So it gives us an interesting few things here. And uh, I've just put the text on my uh, desk here so I can just read it out to you. And it says, uh, I'll read it to you for a moment. It says, now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord and our gathering together to him, we ask you not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled. So don't worry about it for the, mo- for the moment, either by spirit or by word or by letter, as if from us, as though the day of the Lord had come. So what he's saying is you've received some false forgeries, apparently written by me that weren't. It's don't worry about that. And so Paul goes on to say, let no one deceive you by any means, for that last day will not come unless the falling away comes first and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God, all that is worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. And then he goes on and he says, do you not remember that when I was with you, I told you these things, and now you know what is restraining, what may be revealed in his own time, for the mystery of lawlessness is already at work, and he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. 
And then the lawless one is revealed, the man of sin, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. And the coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan with all powers, signs, and lying wonders. And it goes on in this regard. And so we see a number of things here. And let, let's set the proper tone for this. Remember, Paul's communicating with this fresh, new spiritual community in Thessalonica, which is like a, a very influential coastal town in northern Greece. It's still there today. You could go visit it. So Paul's acknowledging that the spiritual students there may have received false reports of the end times, forgeries claiming to be written by him, which was not uncommon at the time. They have, a, they have a term for this, actually, pseudepigraphal. It means falsely ascribed works. For example, um, there's a lot of the Gospel of Thomas is pseudepigraphal. The Gospel of Philip, Philip is pseudepigraphal. They're not really written by those people, those apparently Gnostic Gospels. They're not the forgeries. They're interesting. They're worth reading, but they're pseudepigraphal, falsely ascribed. And so Paul tells his friends that two things must happen before the day of the Lord comes, the end of time. And that is um, the falling away or the great apostasy is one of them. So that's what he says. So remember what we just read that a moment ago. He says, let no one deceive you by any means that the day will not come unless the falling away comes first. What is that? What is the falling away? The word used is apostasia, which means uh, defection, revolt, turning away, uh, uh, defiance, sedition, all, always in a negative context, of course. So this at once is a turning away from godly life. So it means people who are not part of that. And turning away from all that is good, moral, true, right, turning away, not, not just of spiritual practice and life, but also of, even in the common man, a turning away from his innate moral conscience, a failure in the general populace to do what is good and honest and decent in life and to begin to love what is false. And and why do people love what is false? Because they take pleasure in immorality and unrighteousness, uh, which we, we see rife today. Do we not see a society that has fallen into so-called apostasy? I think so. I think that's happened. I think that's happening. People are losing their common sensibility to distinguish between right and wrong, true and false. The second thing he says is there's another thing that must come, which is the man of sin. Who is the man of sin? Well, some people, many readers, think it's the Antichrist, and I would say it is not. The the term Antichrist is a massive erroneous point in most popular theology, and it's a term used actually only a couple of times in very, very brief letters called First John and Second John, just a few pages. An antichrist simply means a person opposed to teachings, principles, and, and you know the spirit of godly instruction. And it's a term used in plural, plural. It just means anyone, anyone whose heart is set against godly life is an antichrist. No individual ever anywhere in scripture is identified as the antichrist because there's not an individual antichrist. There isn't. It's a term for many people. That's what it, that's what we we learn from Scripture, First John, Second John. And Paul said something is hindering or restraining, if you remember, the arising of this man of sin. And again, some people thought that that might be the church. It restrains the arrival of this man of sin, whoever he is, which we'll come to. And some people think it's a, a you know, archangel Michael. But I would say no. 
I'd say that the most likely candidate that was restraining the man of sin from being revealed, this great, terrible figure, is the Roman Empire itself. The Roman Empire restrained the revealing of the man of sin, which sounds strange, but all the early church writers and fathers, as they were called, teachers, including people like Justin Martyr and um, Hippolytus of Rome, St. Jerome, um, who, who, he's the guy who did the Latin translation of the Bible, the so-called Vulgate, and other very notable scholars too. They also thought that the Roman Empire restrained this revealing of the man, this arising rather of the man of sin. Uh, people like Tertullian as well also, who, whose name rather marvelously is actually Quintus Septimius Florence Tertullianus. <laughs> How's that for a name? And then hundreds of years later, during the Reformation period of the mid-16th sort of century, even people like Martin Luther and William Tyndale, they too felt the same. So something, the empire had restrained the man of sin. So, you know, the $64,000 question, who is the man of sin? It's not the Antichrist. No, it's not Satan. No, it's not what people think it is generally. No, then who was it? Uh, The clue to that is found in Daniel 7, which is our other book, which uh, is a key to a lot of major Old Testament prophecy. And in Daniel's book, which was written somewhere between sort of 400 and 250 BC, in chapter 7, we learn that a fourth beast, which is an empire, the beasts are empires, they're not individuals, they're not um, personages, they're systems. So the fourth beast is the empire of Rome, which we're given that. That's translated in the Bible. We don't have to make this up. They're telling us that. And it had these 10 horns, which represent 10 rulers. And after that, it says, another comes, a little horn. A little horn arises. And so the little horn grows up out of the fourth beast, out of the 10 horns. And note, unlike the other beasts, which are usually given animal things, the the little horn is human. And I think Paul in Thessalonians is referring to that. He's referring to what that is. So my proposition to you, who is the little horn? the same as the man of sin, the same as the man of lawlessness, the one in the same who. I would say that among many serious, honest, and open-minded scholars and theologians, ancient and modern, the man of sin is thought to be the institution of the papacy. That is, the chair of Peter, the bishops of Rome, or if you want to put it modern terms, the popes. Pope John Paul II, Pope Benedict, and the new guy, Pope Francis. So the revealing of the man of sin is the revelation that that institution is wrong, is evil, which is not up to bash Catholics. I know loads of cool Catholics and great Catholic authors and writers like Thomas Akempis, John O'Donoghue, Thomas Merton, wonderful people. It's not about Catholic worshippers. It's about the false office of the papacy. And as you may know, and I bet a bunch of your listeners know this, there's a guy who wrote to Donald Trump not long ago. He's done it a couple of times called Carlo Vigano. Vigano. Archbishop. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Carlo Maria Vigano. And he wrote to the president of the United States, Trump, a couple of times, most recently in October, just a couple of months ago, 2020. And he basically highlights the existence of the deep state and the deep church and he even goes so far as to suggest, and this this to the uninitiated is no big deal, but I can't stress to you enough the magnitude, considering this guy is a credible 
Catholic figure. He even goes on to suggest that the Pope himself is an instrument of evil. And I quote, he said in his letter, as is now clear, the one who occupies the chair of Peter, the papacy, has betrayed his role from the very beginning in order to defend and promote globalist ideology, supporting the agenda of the deep church who chose him from its ranks. I can't tell you how serious that is, that that's the beginning of the revelation publicly shared that the man of sin is being revealed. And that's I think that's been in the works for about 20 years, but it's starting to happen. So there's our first two check marks, the great apostasy, the falling of common sense and decency away, check. The man of sin being revealed, I say check. I think that's on its on its way. The last one is something called the strong delusion. And this is from Second Thessalonians 2. And Paul says here, I'll read it, it's just one paragraph. It says, the coming of the lawless one, the man of sin, is according to the word, word of working of Satan, as we said before, with all powers, signs, and lying wonders, and with all unrighteous deception among those who perish, people who perish because they did not receive the love of truth, they didn't accept the love of truth, through which they would have been saved. And for this reason, God will send them strong delusion that they should believe the lie, and that they all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but took pleasure in unrighteousness. So what it's saying there is a, quote, strong delusion fashioned by God himself will come upon the earth and expose those who don't want truth because they take pleasure in un- in the unrighteousness of their own selfish, complacent, conceited lives. And you might wonder, why would a loving God send a strong delusion to wreak havoc on people? Why would he do that? Answer, because he's testing everyone. Part Part of the way God tests us, and if you wish to say it, part of the way he loves us or cares about us, he tests us in all manner of personal and moral and spiritual choices. Tested, say like a firm but fair, you know, martial arts instructor. He tests the students hard because he cares about them. Or a Navy SEAL instructor who wants the very best from his beloved warriors and students. Or or like a virtuoso musician who wants to draw out excellence from his students. You know, and here we have a supreme and wise deity, the deity, who trains and instructs and teaches and guides his children. We are in class. Our our behavior, our choices, our growth, our penitence, our humility, our knowledge, all of that stuff is being tested, proportionate to each person's abilities. And one of those great tests near the end times is the strong delusion. And I'd say it's it's right before us right now, right today. Look at the world. False senators, false elections, false viruses, false genders, false wars, false medicine, false news, false freaking everything. You know, holy crap, can it get any more false, any more intensely deceptive? It's profound delusion. Now, again, if you go to the original language, which if you study scripture, you have to. You can't just read the English translation. The words, the term strong delusion that we've read here is from two words, two terms, energia plane. Energia means a working, an action, a productive work, but it's especially superhuman stuff. And it only occurs seven or eight times in Bible uh, study. And it always refers to the supernatural, non-human emanational power. 
And it's it's typically describes how God's energy shifts human beings from point to point to point in his plan. And once also Satan does the same thing. So it's always a supernatural being doing something to move the plan along, the teaching along. The second word, as I said, is plane, just like it's the word plane, but it's got an E, an accent over the E. So I think I believe it's pronounced plane. And what does that mean? It means a deceit, a delusion, an error, a sin. And that particular term refers to deviant behavior, you know, straying from goodness, straying into sin, straying, you know, where you let you led astray, going left and right. And you can see that usage is true. It's it's a, a wandering into sin. And other writers, nothing to do with scripture, also knew that and wrote in that manner. People like Herodotus, Euripides, Plato, etc. And bef- before we conclude our point here, it's interesting to know the reference is given prior as well in a much older book. Sorry, another older book, Isaiah, in chapter 66, where we read, just as they have chosen their own ways, this is God speaking, and their soul delights in their abominations, so will I choose their delusions and bring their fears upon them. Because when I called out, no one answered. When I spoke, they did not hear, but they did instead evil before my eyes and chose things in which I do not delight. So we see a divine working of supremeless, of supreme how can I say, supreme obviousness of wrongful and deviant behavior. And to me, it's what is the strong delusion? It's a kind of giant signpost that God has put up in our world that says, evil this way. Go this way if you love evil. So anyone who turns that way has proven, has shown that, that you know there's no excuse, no interest in God whatsoever. It's a signpost for fools. The kind, the kind of people who think it's okay to kill a million babies in the womb every year because they're inconvenient. People who think you can choose your gender. People who think sex with children is okay. People who think open borders and illegal immigration and forced ethnic diversity are okay. Pe- people who think history, heritage, lineage, pride, patriotism are wrong. People who think Christianity is wrong. People who think strong, loving fathers are not needed in a family People who think masculine men and feminine women are bad. People who don't love truth, civility, propriety, personal responsibility. These kinds of people, they boast in their advocacy, do they not, of unrighteousness. They have fallen willfully into the strong delusion, into evil. They've chosen it. So to them, a strong delusion is sent which marks out their grotesque self-chosen hatred of God godly life, decency, divinity, which in all likelihood will see them obliterated from existence altogether. So I'll conclude with this remark, because I know we're up on the hour here. We end up, therefore, at the point where we, Paul tells us that the great falling away, the revealing of the man and sin, and the working of the strong delusion are clear scriptural official markers, signs of end times. Now, naturally, as mature, reasonable adults, we must exercise a very healthy degree of reason here and responsibility in thinking about these things and not jump to sort of lurid and melodramatic conclusions. However, we are entitled to postulate, to theorize, to envision what we see before us. 
And for me, based on what I've just told you, which I'm, of course I'm just skimming the surface, but based on those simple facts, I observe the very definite and mounting situation that these three eschatological markers are real and they're identified and they're happening now in real time across the world right in front of our eyes. And I think that that level of supernatural correlation is worth our very serious contemplation because it makes you prioritize. We, we don't waste time on perspective one, you know, mainstream fictional illusion garbage, this bloody made-up world of Prince Charles and Bill Gates and Barack Obama and all their disgracefulness. We concentrate on nonfiction, hyper-reality, supernatural. We concentrate on what is real. So I think by looking at the eschatology, it's not the fear of the end, because if, if you know your eschatology, the end is an exciting time, because it means the classroom of Earth has graduated. It's finished. We've figured it out. We've learned everything. This whole thing is then destroyed, rendered, completely obsolete, finished, done, to make way for a new one. So as it says in Second Peter, another eschatological pointer in Scripture, that, that this world is completely done away with. And it says the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up, everything. And everything's dissolved, as he says. And the heavens themselves pass away with a great noise. They're replaced too. Everything is upgraded, replaced. And the people who, as he describes, of holy conduct and godliness, today we'd say people who care about truth and peace and justice and honesty and authenticity and know about spiritual reality, they look forward to the coming of this day because they know that that is the gateway forward to the new earth. They know that. So the end is never fearful for true spiritual mature people, never it's exciting, it's weird, it's strange, it's mysterious, sure, but not afraid, because death to the real spiritual human is not an enemy. It's a transitional point. So the eschatology here, far from being about fear of the end, it's about a gladness of the collapse of empire, because when this goes down, they go with it, and we go to the earth that was always designed for us in the first place, the end. Beautiful words, good ending for segment one. And I wanted to just say something about apostasy for a moment, and we'll take the break. You know, the abandonment, the the disaffiliation, the the renunciation of, of so many people. And one can only look at this Pope and wonder if he has been switched, as you well said before, could be a clone, right. could be a hologram. Right. I remember that supposedly he got COVID quote-unquote, COVID, and some people saw it in the 16th chapel at, or coming out of his, his uh, apartment, and when he's retreating or leaving, it disappeared, almost like if it was a hologram. Right. But right. Uh, I'm just thinking of... Very po- much, very, very possible, very possible. Not, you probably saw that, right? Very possible. Yeah, I've seen all the videos. I've got extensive records of anomalies with uh, in-person and video link people disappearing during the event and then you you know they put it down to a camera blip or a technology problem or something but it's not it's the technology is is not perfect it's just like everything else here it's not perfect it doesn't always work and so they have to do a quick move on to the next thing but i've seen lots of individuals disappear so that doesn't at all interfere with this because as we said in perspective three you know there's a retraining simulation happening here we're being shown something if you just tell everyone they live in a giant satanic shithole and the whole thing is drenched 
wrapped in evil and everything you've ever believed was absolute garbage, you wouldn't be able to actually have any functioning society. There'd be a giant nihilistic collapse, a giant problem. So this, the retraining exercise is to slowly step down and show people the nature of good and evil and right and wrong and true and false. Show them slowly. And still, people don't want to do it. So the strong delusion, the energia plan A, that God sends is just to make it easy and say, look, I'm going to make this so absurdly, ridiculously evil and wrong, obviously, that if you still choose that, if you insist on choosing that abomination of life, then I will destroy you because I want no part of that because there's no excuse for that anymore. And I think that apostasy, that falling away, as they call it also, is here. Of course it is. You can see it. It's rife throughout the world. It's not just America. It's not just Britain. It's not just Australia. It's everywhere. And I think that that is a major marker. Now, again, you have to be reasonable about this. You have to question it because there's hundreds of views on this stuff. I've just presented mine tonight. But I think that it demonstrates that it's worthy of our study, if nothing else. Neil, any plans this uh, coming few months, next year? Usually have a lot of conferences, I know, because of COVID. Perhaps this has turned more into a Zoom or online. But what's coming up for Neil Kramer? Well, as usual, most of my time is devoted to teaching with individuals. So that's what I spend the majority of my time doing. I have got some interesting ideas and plans, but I think like a lot of people, I'm a little bit waiting to see what happens over the next three months. Uh, in fact, I had two people today offer venues for me to teach in, in summer and fall. And I said the same thing to them. Thank you. You know, I'll get back to you in a little bit. So I definitely enjoy meeting with people in a larger groups and doing stuff like that. So honestly, I'm going to see how that plays out. Zoom's great uh, and Skype and, you know, other meeting tools and whatnot. They're great. You can do a lot with that. But there's no there's no substitute for meeting in person. So I'm going to see what happens with that. But of course, in the meantime, um, the real teaching is in your own life. It's not in what you know anyone else does. It's it's right in front of you. So I think the isolation, even though some of that is artificial, actually serves to prove that we can do it ourselves. That we can actually continue to seek truth alone. You don't need to plug into a feed or a screen or a page or a group. You can do it alone. And then I think that period of time is a, is coming to an end now. And then I, I see in 2021, there'll be some big changes in that. And so uh, it's hard to plan for that, frankly, but I keep my schedule pretty flexible. So um, if anything comes out, of course, which I'm sure it will do in time, you just go to neilkramer.com and it'll be on, on the website. Such a privilege for me to have Neil Kramer back again. So many years. I keep forgetting how many years you've been with me, but I think it's from the beginning. And, you know, it's an honor to call you my friend. And, you know, season 13 is starting now, and what a great beginning it will be. We have to remain optimistic, positive, perhaps the phoenix rising from the ashes, and perhaps this is what we'll see in 2021. I'm here with my friend Neil Kramer. Another hour coming up. This is Mel Hasselrick, and you are listening to Veritas. Don't go anywhere. Thank you for listening to the first part of this important Veritas interview. To listen to the rest and all of our material, proceed to the member section or join the Veritas family by subscribing. Click on the subscribe button at veritasradio.com. You can make your purchase with a credit card, PayPal, cash, check, money order, 
and even cryptocurrency. We are now accepting Bitcoin, Litecoin, and Ethereum. Don't forget to visit the Veritas store for Focus Life Force Energy, MMS, CBD Pure Hemp Oil, Divinia Water, Pure Organic Sulfur, Flash Drives with all our Sanitas and Veritas seasons, and other great products. And if you're listening on YouTube, like, subscribe, and share it. And click the bell to be notified when new interviews are available. Now, proceed to the members section or subscribe, to listen to the rest of the interview. You don't want to miss it. Thank you for listening to Veritas. Because you don't want to believe. You want to know.